want you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, uh, the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. Um, and as most of you know, but in case you don't, if you're a guest, just to let you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now, now called Going Viral, and it's a study of this uh, first century document that uh, records how the early Christian church and uh, the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, and went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And uh, if you've missed any of it so far, you can go online and listen and catch up. This is part four. Uh, part four, and we're already through chapter one. Uh, so only 28 chapters to go. We're well on our way. We'll be there in no time. Uh, so last week, uh, we ended chapter one, and w- when we left off, uh, Jesus' closest friends and followers, uh, Peter, John, Mary, Martha, uh, his four brother, Jesus' four brothers, 120 men and women, were hanging out in Jerusalem uh, waiting for um, the promised arrival of God's Holy Spirit. It had been 10 days since uh, Jesus' ascension, 50 days since his resurrection. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Luke reports this. He says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus Pontus and uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. So we're going to talk about this event. Before we do, let's pray. Our Father, in the same way that your spirit came to minister and empower and indwell um, these early believers and your church, we pray that you would do the same for us today. Be with us in a unique way. Teach us and guide us into truth. Assure us of your, your love and empower us to make a difference in our world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, for many of us, uh, when we think of the book of Acts, uh, our minds um, tend to immediately shift to the miraculous event that's recorded here in the opening verses of chapter 2, an event that led to what historians consider to be one of the most amazing phenomena in history, that a small, diverse group of Jesus' followers could initiate and lead a spiritual movement that would become the dominating faith of the mighty pagan Roman Empire. You know, a movement that would change not only that empire, but change the world. A movement that continues today with some two billion people, about one-third of the world's population, calling themselves Christian. How did that happen? I've mentioned this already in, in the series, but in his book, The Rise of Christianity, author Rodney Stark, who's a professor of social sciences at Baylor University, explores that very question. You know, how did that happen? How did the church grow so rapidly in su- such a short amount of time? And he looks at things from a, a sociological perspective. 
However, Stark admits that social science can't fully explain it. He says, no sacrilege is entailed in the search to understand human actions in human terms. Moreover, I don't reduce the rise of Christianity to purely material or social factors. In other words, he's saying, human factors alone cannot possibly explain the explosive growth of the Christian church and the impact it had on history. Uh, Stark readily concedes that. And yet he he seems unprepared to accept the explanation that historic biblical Christianity was and is not a movement driven by human invention or ingenuity, but, but is the result of the power of God unleashed in and through Jesus' followers. You know, it was the, the fulfillment of what Jesus promised, that when the Holy Spirit arrived, uh, the Spirit would empower believers to be his witnesses locally, regionally, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. So let's take a look at, at when and how it happens Because first of all, the timing is significant. According to Luke, it was the day of Pentecost. And the Greek term for Pentecost literally means 50. Uh, So it was the 50th day after the Sunday of Passover, after the day of Jesus' resurrection. And 50 days after that uh, that day of Passover, for for the Israelites, it's a festival day. It's, It's also known as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Festival of Harvest. And in fact, this, this year, May 24th, uh, is the date of that festival. And in the ancient days, it was one of three holidays that were required uh, of, of, Jewish, of Jewish people. Every Jewish man living within 20 miles of Jerusalem was uh, legally obligated to travel to the city for the festival. Thousands of others would uh, make the trek from all across the ancient world just to celebrate together. And uh, since it was the day marking the harvest season, people were required to bring uh, what, what they called the first fruits of their labors. Um, they would come and they would offer crops or, or money in the temple to God as an expression of gratitude. It was sort of like um, Jewish thanksgiving. Uh, and the festival also had historic meaning. Uh, it commemorated the day that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, uh, which was 50 days after uh, lambs were sacrificed in Egypt and their blood smeared on the doorposts of their homes to ensure that the angel of death would pass over all believers and Israel was rescued and given new life. So all that to say is the day of Pentecost was a pretty big deal, religiously, agriculturally, socially, and Jerusalem was mobbed with Jewish people from, from all over the, the, the ancient world. And it, and it was on this day, Luke says, that all the apostles, all the followers of Jesus, men and women alike, were together in one place in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit arrives in rather dramatic fashion and, as, as Luke puts it, fills every single one of them. In fact, there are three supernatural phenomenons associated with the, spiritual, uh, the Spirit's arrival that help us understand what this feeling meant and, uh, for everyone involved. First, it meant that every follower of Jesus uh, received external power. Uh, Luke writes, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven filled the whole house where they were sitting. Here's my Ray K translation. Everyone there heard and experienced something. A best description, uh, it was like a hurricane force wind. It wasn't a hurricane, but it was something like that. And it was something that came from heaven. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't some internally manufactured psychological or emotional frenzied experience. No. The divine spirit comes from outside the believers to not only fill the house they were in, but to fill them and indwell them. Now, if you think about it, this event 
immediately puts Christianity at odds with our culture. Because uh, culture says that the solution to the external problems of our world comes from within us as human beings. That we have the ability to, to save ourselves, to solve our problems, right? And we've talked about this. Uh, the, the idea is that if we just tap into it, we have the power to solve all of our problems, social prejudices, dysfunctional relationships, political corruption, economic oppression, uh, abject poverty, war, crime, senseless violence, all of it. As human beings, we have inside of, of us everything we need to heal ourselves and to heal our broken world. But, but historic biblical Christianity says the very opposite of that. Christianity asserts that the problems of our world originate within us. And therefore, the solution must come from outside us. It must be external. The solution is God and his power. Uh, Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author. And a while back, she wrote an article in the New York Times entitled, What Brand is Your Therapist? It's an interesting article. article and in it, she cites a study done by the American Psychological Association uh, that says 30% less people are pursuing therapy today than they did, say, 15, 17 years ago. And uh, of those who do, rather than coming and saying, uh, you know, I need to understand myself, my issues, and change, people either don't come or they come and they say, hey, the problem I have is because of other people out there or other circumstances out there that, that need to change. Other people need to change, not me. And there's this, she says, there's this ongoing uh, growth of, of a lack of personal culpability that's, that's problematic in our culture. She says people want to buy a solution to a problem. A shift has occurred from people coming in who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better to people who come in because they want someone or something else to change. Fewer and fewer people come saying, I want to change. Why is that? Simple. It's because our culture, as a culture, we, we, we don't see ourselves as the, as the problem really. The problem is always out there with something else, with someone else. If anything, we're the solution. I mean, it's a, and it's a convoluted perspective on reality. And here's the deal. Christianity calls us back to reality. It demands that we come to grips with our, with our human brokenness, our self-centeredness, our greed, our arrogance, our prejudices, our inability to solve the problems in our own lives, let alone the problems of our world. Because the problems start here, which means that we need, and I would say desperately so, we need something outside of ourselves. We need external help. We need God. Now, he is the solution, and being filled with the Spirit means experiencing that external power that brings about true change and transformation. It also means experiencing an internal reality. Luke says that everyone in the room, they also saw what seemed to be Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to the casual observer, uh, this whole fire thing may seem quite sensational, but not all that significant, and yet it was. And here's why. Uh, in the Old Testament, when the glory of God's presence showed up somewhere, uh, it often showed up uh, as fire. For example, Genesis 15, when God seals the covenant with Abraham, if you recall the story, he appears as what? As a blazing, uh, blazing torch. Um, Moses, uh, his first encounter with God, God reveals himself as what? A fiery bush. 
when God's holy presence descends on Mount Sinai to give Moses the law, and this is significant to Pentecost, when, 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 the, when God's presence descends on Sinai to give the law, Exodus 19.18 says, the Lord descended on the mountain in fire. When leading the Israelites through the wilderness, God's presence manifests itself as a pillar of fire. When the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of God, what did he see? He saw fire. So uh, it's a big deal. And here's the thing. Whenever the fiery presence of God showed up, it was always overwhelming and in a few cases, fatal. So do you see the significance of what was happening here? Uh, As promised, God's spirit shows up in power and is manifest in what appears to be, as best described, tongues of fire that rest on every believer. On every believer. Now let's take note of that because there are a lot of people in that room, man, you know? Uh, 120 people. And, and of everyone there, certainly the apostles who spent three years with Jesus, who were personally recruited by Jesus, personally mentored by Jesus, they were without a doubt the most prepared and equipped to carry out the mission of bringing this good news of Jesus to our world. And yet they are not, you know, the only ones to receive and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke makes it very clear that the fire came to rest on each person in the room, each person. All of them were filled, no exceptions. Apostles, non-apostles, men and women, young and old, educated, uneducated. Suddenly, every follower of Jesus, every believer received this, this inner reality, the indwelling spirit of God himself. And, you know, that had to be, for them, it had to be really uh, assuring because they had been waiting for this and waiting for 10 days and, Think about the questions and the worries and the anxiety. And so when this happens, it had to be reassuring. In fact, that's one of the, the Spirit's uh, jobs in, in the life of a believer, to comfort and assure us that we are God's children, that we are His. I think of it this way. If you see two kids walking down the street, uh, a, a, two bro- a brother and a sister, and they're walking with their father, and suddenly their father scoops them up in their arms and hugs them and kisses them and says, I love you guys, I love you guys. At that moment, is that son more of a son and the daughter more of a daughter than they were two seconds ago when they were standing on the street? No. Um, legally, no. Objectively, no. But subjectively, experientially, the answer is yes, because in their father's arms, there, there was this, there's this assurance of his love. And that's kind of how it is with, with God's Spirit. When He indwells us, when we come to faith in Jesus and, and God's Spirit indwells us, He assures us that we are God's children and that we are loved and we are accepted no matter what. And if God sacrificed Himself to rescue us and to give us life and says He's never going to let us go, that nothing in heaven or on earth from time to eternity can separate us from His love, I mean, that kind of assurance is, is life-changing and empowering, to say the least. And if that's not part of your experience, your spiritual experience, then I, I, would, I would say that perhaps it's because you've never come to that place in your life where you've accepted Jesus, where you've made a commitment to be a follower of his, because when you do that, uh, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to change us, and most importantly, assure us that we are his. So quick recap, after 10 days of waiting, on the 50th day after the resurrection, 120 believers find themselves uh, in the midst of this supernatural event uh, in the presence of God's Spirit who fills each one of them, assuring them, empowering them. And what's the result? Luke says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. 
And just so we're clear on this, the, the Greek term for languages here is sometimes translated tongues, which is sort of the old English way of saying it, but the term simply means known human languages. In other words, uh, Peter, who was an uneducated fisherman from Galilee, suddenly found himself speaking a foreign language, Arabic or Swahili or something, you know, something he was unfamiliar with. It'd be like me speaking Mandarin. I'm from North Jersey. What do I know about Mandarin? Nothing except their little oranges. I mean, that's all I, I really know, right? So here we have, what we have here is essentially the church's first public miracle. Um, keep in mind, Jerusalem was mobbed with people. They had come from this, this, this festival, this harvest festival. And Luke says, uh, there were uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when he says every nation, he's using hyperbole to make a point that there were a lot of people. Uh, people, Jewish people, they were called the diaspora. You, you know, centuries earlier, they had been spread out around the region. Uh, and, uh, and so they had grown up in these foreign lands. And although they were Jewish, they, they weren't Jewish by culture. You know, they, they're, they're from these foreign lands. So they, but they would come back from all these nations and provinces, from all around the Roman Empire. They would come back for the festival, come back to Jerusalem, to the city. And so when these followers of Jesus come out into the streets, out into the marketplace, out into the temple, speaking all these various languages and dialects, uh, uh, of, of all these visitors, Luke says, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each, each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Translation, this is freaky weird. This is bizarre. This is a bar bizarre happening. You know, there, par, 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 you know, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, res residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, all of these people say, man, we hear, we hear these followers of Jesus declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, our own languages, our own dialects. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? That's a really good question. What did it mean? The initial textbook answer is that this miracle meant the Spirit of God is real. And that he had come and he was at work and he was powerful and he was indwelling all of his believers and at times enables them and us to accomplish the impossible. You know, in this very unique uh, circumstance, he supernaturally authenticates the good news that these early Christians were, were, were proclaiming. That's, and that's, what, that's what's meant by they were declaring the wonders of God, you know, um, the wonders of incarnation, the wonders of Jesus, the wonders of his miracles, Crucifixion, the wonders of resurrection, of the forgiveness of sin, the wonders of God's grace. And so at a, at a very timely moment in history, when men and women from, from all over the ancient world were together in Jerusalem, this miracle of languages, this first miracle, first public miracle of the church, this miracle of languages gets their attention and authenticates the presence of God. But there's more to it than that. Uh, there's something profound here, and I'm not sure we always see it, or if we do, we tend to gloss over it. But think about it for a second. This miracle, what did it do? Well, it brought the message of God's grace in all these different languages to all these different people all at the same time. You say, is that significant? Well, it's hugely significant. 
What does it mean? It means that from the get-go, God was making sure that no one person, no one language, no one culture had precedent over over another when it comes to the good news, when it comes to faith, when it comes to the Christian church. No one people group dominates. See? Dr. Laman Sani is a professor of history and missiology at Yale University, and he's written a ton of books. Two of them speak to this very issue. One's called Translating the Message, uh, and uh, a second's called Whose Religion is Christianity? And Dr. Sani is African. Uh, He was born in Gambia. He was raised Muslim. But uh, after reading and studying about Jesus, he became a Christian. And so he writes a lot about religion's impact on culture and Christianity and culture, those kind of things. And in his book, Translating the Message, he talks about the difference, for example, between Islam and Christianity. Uh, and he writes how, as Muslims, he, would t- he says, Muslims will tell you that the Quran cannot be translated. It cannot be translated. Once the Quran is translated, whether it's into French or English or whatever, it's no longer really the Quran. It's sort of an explanation of the Quran, but it's not truly the Quran because, because, because God, Allah, speaks Arabic. And so to truly hear God's word, to truly read God's word, it's got to be in Arabic. It's got to be in Arabic. Otherwise, it's really not. And Sani says, that one of the thing, this is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique, that the miracle of, of Pentecost proves it. The word and the truth of God can be translated into any language. You know, any language, Hebrew, Greek, English, Arabic, Mandingo, any language, any dialect, and therefore the message of Jesus isn't owned by any one culture. The truth of the gospel comes into every culture, informs and perhaps renews culture, yet at the same time honors every culture making Christianity the most culturally diverse faith on the planet. Which means, on a practical level for us, as Western Christians, uh, we, we must never think or suggest that our way of doing things, our way of doing church, if you will, is the only way to do it, it's the only right way to do it. No, no, no. It's like saying, you know, oh, you know, Sunday, Sunday has to be a band playing, a bald guy speaking for 30 minutes, and we get out in 60, right? We're home for the Bulls, the Bears, the Blackhawks. But no, 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 no. Every culture is different. With varying levels of, of emotional expressiveness and ways of understanding time and punctuality, uh, different ideas on community and family and, and art and music and worship. And we have to recognize that diversity as a very wonderful thing. God is not interested in cultural homogeneity. I mean, believers from every culture of the world are going to be in heaven because the grace of God transcends ethnic boundaries. And just as God has made every individual unique and so they bring something special to the believing community, so God has made every culture unique with certain themes and resources and and strengths and talents and contributions to make to the kingdom of heaven. And keep in mind, when the Apostle John describes heaven, you remember how he describes it? He describes it as a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Standing before the throne of God, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. In other words... Heaven is going to be a palette of color bursting with cultural diversity. So 
So don't miss this. I mean, from the birth of the church, Christianity has proclaimed itself to be not just for one, one place, one time, one people, but for all people everywhere who will believe. And therefore, the church is and should be on a, on a local, even on a local level, the most culturally, racially, economically diverse institution around. And we should be doing everything that we can to nurture that beautiful diversity. And uh, I, think, I think this topic is worth... Uh, talking about more down the road, but the overall point of this text is that the miracle of Pentecost, the, this, this multilingual witness of these first Christians, stressed the universal, the universal offer of salvation, and it also highlighted the church's multicultural character and how God affirms people as cultural beings. And just as our, you know, just as our native language and culture is really important to us, uh, it would have been equally important to the people visiting Jerusalem, Asian, African, Arabian, Greek, Libyan, Roman, people from north, south, east, west, you know, for them to hear, think about this, for them to hear the message of God's grace in Jesus offered in their own language, in their own dialect, uh, was no doubt startling, but but also incredibly meaningful because the very idea that God cares enough to speak my language, no wonder they were amazed. Luke says their amazement moved to perplexity. In other words, they were amazed and they were trying to figure out the why of this miracle. Why was this happening? What was the cause? What was the significance of it? And most of the people in the crowd couldn't come up with an answer but were open to an explanation, which is why they asked, what does this mean? On the other hand, there were some who didn't care. It really didn't give a rip and just kind of wrote it off as drunken stupidity saying, ah, they've had too much, too much wine to drink. And next week, we're going to see Peter stand up and say, these people aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> this, that's what he's going to tell me. This is the work of God. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I'm, I'm really glad that Luke records the, the dismissive ridicule of some of the people because it reminds me that, that there are always going to be scoffers and critics of what we as followers of Jesus say and do. And if we don't have them, perhaps we're not doing and saying enough. Do you know what I mean? Theologian N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. He says, again and again in the work of the church to this day, there are always plenty who declare we're wasting our time in talking incomprehensible nonsense. Equally, some Christians have been so concerned to keep up safe appearances and to make sure they're looking like ordinary people that they'd never, under any circumstances, have been accused of being drunk at nine in the morning or any other time. Part of the challenge of this passage is the question, have our churches today got enough energy, enough spirit-driven new life to make onlookers pass any comment at all? Has anything happened which might make people think we're drunk? If not, is it because the Spirit is simply at work in other ways or because we have so successfully quenched God's Spirit that there's actually nothing happening at all? Listen, when it comes to, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to a faith, look, there are always going to be scoffers. There's always going to be critics. For me, the question is, are we in the church today being criticized for the right reasons? You know what I mean? Are we living in such a spiritually dynamic, loving, truthful, gracious, generous, and bold way that it just doesn't make sense to people in our culture? And so some people are intrigued by it and they want to, want to know why, what is it about, while others just call us 
just call us crazy out of our minds. And it seems to me that if we're filled and led by God's Spirit, we're going to see and experience both of those responses. So clearly, this, this supernatural event, this, this arrival of the Holy Spirit, marks the birth of the church and the fulfillment of divine promise. And not just what Jesus promised when he said to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses, but also fulfills the promise God made centuries earlier when he said, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people, your sons and daughters, young and old, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, ultimately that's what this miracle comes down to, the offer, the offer of divine rescue. So don't, don't get so caught up in the sensationalism of Pentecost, the wind, the fire, the languages, the theology of it all, and miss the true significance of it. That God's Spirit has come to indwell and empower us, the church, individually and corporately, so we might go out and bring the universal message of God's love and grace in Jesus to every person, every tribe, every nation, every language, every culture uh, of the world. That's, that's why we're here. That's what we're called to do. And so just as, as he did with the earliest believers, um, may the Holy Spirit empower and inspire us to that task. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, thinking through uh, this text this week, uh, the, the, that one question continues to haunt me, are we criticized for the right things? Because there are always going to be critics. But are we, are, we, are, we, are we questioned and criticized because people look at us and see, see a group of people who, who love each other, who are ridiculously generous, who are willing to serve others who are different, embrace others who are different, who are willing to go out of their way to help those who are marginalized and forgotten of our society, people who speak truth, who believe in your grace, and who name Jesus as Lord. Are there people who are criticizing us and calling us crazy? Even more importantly, are there those who are criticizing us but are intrigued and want to know why and want to know more? I pray that that would be the case. I also pray that, Lord, as we think about this miraculous event that launched your church into the world and that changed the course of humanity, uh, I pray that we wouldn't get so caught up in the sensationalism of it that we lose the significance. Yes, that your spirit has come into the church and to empower every believer, but empowered us to bring this message of hope and grace to every culture, every nation, every language and people. And that heaven is going to be made up of that diversity, that wonderful, beautiful diversity. May we celebrate that. May we, may we do what we can to cultivate that even here in our own, our own community. And um, may we give you thanks that you love all people, but in a personal way, it comes down to you love each of us individually. And you've made promises to assure us of that by the power of your spirit at work. So we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness and your promises to us. They're always fulfilled. And we worship you this morning, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So, uh, hey, thanks for being with us this morning. And, uh, you know...
the one thing I mentioned about the Holy Spirit and work in our lives to assure, to assure us that we're God's people, God's children, you know, that's an important thing for us, especially any of us that have kind of gone the, the religious route in the past, you know, in our lives where we've been trying to be good enough that God will love us and care about us and we're like trying to be, you know, ritualistic and be a good enough person and and then, uh, and then we just feel like, I don't know if I've made it, you know, and there's always this fear and this guilt and uh, apprehension and, and all this stuff because that's what, that's what religion breeds in us. But when we come to faith in Jesus and we understand the grace of God, and we experience that grace and God pours out his spirit on us, man, he, God's spirit assures us that, that we are his people, that we're loved no matter what. And, uh, and, that, and that there's this change that begins to happen in us from the inside out. And, uh, and we become more fearless and we have a difference, we make a difference on people's lives. If you've never, if you're struggling with that idea of assurance and you're just really wrestling with guilt and fear and apprehension and, and, and disappointment and all that stuff in your spiritual life, you know, it could, could it be that you've never really made a commitment to Jesus? You're just kind of being religious. Look, I can't make that commitment for you. I can't do it for you. Each of us has to come to a place in life where we decide, do we believe, do we not, not believe? The in-between is where the apprehension and fear comes in and the guilt. So I hope you'll make that commitment to be a follower of Jesus. Talk to someone you know from Parkview. Uh, following the service, some of our prayer team folks will be down front. You can talk, come down and talk, talk with them more about it. Or maybe you just had a really rotten week. You, want, you need someone to pray with you. They're down here for you as well, okay? Uh, or maybe you had a good week and you want to tell somebody they're down here for you. They're down here for everybody. They're really talented people. Anyway, uh, hey, come back next Sunday. We're going to continue in the series. Peter's going to stand up because these people aren't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, this is the work of God, and he's going to lay out the gospel. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool thing that he says, and I hope you can come back and we'll take a look at it together. In the meantime, have a great week, uh, and let me pray for you. And now, Lord, as the church leaves the building, as we go back into the streets of our neighborhoods and our community, uh, maybe we won't go speaking languages that we're unfamiliar with, but we're going, Lord, with a sense of your presence. And I pray that you would empower us to bring this universal message of grace and love, this message of Jesus and forgiveness of sins, of resurrection and life. We would bring it to uh, the people of our culture, people who are like us, people who are different. And we, we not only speak these things, but we, we live in such a way that we demonstrate these things and we're able to point people to you. I ask that your hand of grace and peace and strength by the power of your spirit be on your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.